0: Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. Today, your host is Julie Gunderson, at Julie underscore Gund on Twitter. This episode was recorded during the PagerDuty Summit in 2019. Julie got a chance to speak with Yuri Grinstein customer engineer at Google Cloud. Yuri specializes in ensuring system reliability, so their chat focuses on the importance of smart alerting and SLOs.
1: Welcome to PagerDuty Studio, coming to you live from PagerDuty Summit. I'm your host today, Julie Gunderson, DevOps advocate at PagerDuty. And with us, we have Yuri Grinchdane, customer engineer at Google. And we're going to be talking to you today about... Smart alerting and SLOs, Yuri.
2: Hi, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here.
1: Well, thank you for coming here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Yuri. Sure.
2: Uh, So currently, I'm a customer engineer at Google, actually in Google Cloud, Uh, I'm a specialist on reliability, which means that it's really my job to help customers architect reliable systems, uh, but also to help them do things like figure out uh, alerting, which obviously is very relevant given that we're here at the PagerDuty Summit, and we're generally talking about all things PagerDuty-related.
1: Well, I know you told me that alerting is really near and dear to your heart, which is a fun thing to say, but tell me a little bit more why alerting is so important to you.
2: Yeah, of of course. It's interesting that you say that. It's not even that alerting in itself is near and dear to my heart. It's actually one of the soapboxes that I find myself on on a fairly regular basis when talking to customers. It so often happens that customers will... Is, you know, look for help with alerting, and they'll say, "Hey, how do I know if you know I have an issue with my infrastructure? How do I alert on things like high CPU utilization or you know high memory consumption?" I um, especially lately, with lots of customers interested in Kubernetes observability, a lot of the questions that I get are around, you know, how do I know when like the pods are running out of memory? And this inevitably sets me off on a long uh, and rambling rant about why you should never alert on things in your infrastructure, uh, why you should only alert on those things that um, directly impact user happiness.
1: So when customers come to you, what is something that you see as a common mistake that they made? You mentioned alerting on your infrastructure. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah. So, you know, it's funny, uh, because I feel like it's not even that folks are really making this mistake. It's just something that I think we in the industry have Maybe even trained our customers to do. I mean, that for probably two decades now, right? I mean, I've spent most of my career in monitoring, diagnostics, troubleshooting, and lately observability. And I remember having conversations with folks. I don't know, fifteen years ago, and they would say, "Hey, you know, we're using this monitoring system, but um, we get all these alerts from it, and so we've kind of ended up uh, basically ignoring them. So, like, can you help us figure this out?" and A lot of these systems, you know, 15, 20 years ago would ship with just like everything turned on, right? So all the monitoring would be on, but then you'd have all these alerts that would be configured out of the box with all these sort of thresholds that people consider to be the right thing to set. And so the second that you would enable your monitoring, you'd also be just flooded with alerts, right? And so you would, uh, kind of sit with a customer and they would pull up their, you know, email client and they would, you just see like literally a thousand unread messages in their inbox from the monitoring tool. And then folks got a little bit smarter and they started creating email filters. So they would just like filter out all of their alerting to go to a folder where they would sort of review it at their leisure. And then I, I think this is where folks like PagerDuty came along and said, Hey, you're getting all these alerts. You're not really using them to drive action, you're either ignoring them or you're suffering from alert fatigue, which I'm sure you've heard before. You know, let us kind of do the job of your email filter, essentially. And, you know, I apologize if I'm, like, misconstruing what PagerDuty really started uh, as, but that's the way I've always thought of it, is, like, people just had all these alerts coming in, and PagerDuty was basically, like, the, the filter. It would really tell you which one of them was the important one, And then they would, like, escalate it to your pager. And so because of the great work that y'all have done, like, we never really taught customers that, hey, like, you shouldn't actually do that. You should not generate a 1,000 alerts a minute and then let, like, pager duty figure it out. You should actually go back to the root of it and figure out what is it that you should be alerting on. And then when that's the case, you can certainly use PagerDuty as the delivery mechanism. You can make sure that there's like proper escalation behind it because maybe the monitoring toolkit that you're using doesn't really have like clever escalation paths. But the fundamental problem that you're trying to solve, which is like, hey, I get a thousand alerts an hour and I don't know which ones are important. That's not the problem that we should like be buying PagerDuty to solve. That's a problem that we should be addressing at the root.
1: Yeah, and PagerDuty, you know, started in 2009 as a, an alerting system. It was just alarms going off. But we quickly realized that it became about modern incident response and real-time operations. Um, so we've combined event intelligence and visibility. But I'd say one of the big things, too, is alert grouping. Because as you mentioned, with all those alerts going to an email, people putting that in a filter, they miss the big ones.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right, right? If, so if you have a filter in your inbox that just like filters out everything from the monitoring system, then like, yeah, what happens when the important one comes in? What happens when you, when you have a real outage? You're, you're going to miss it and you're basically training people to ignore alerts, which is, which is really bad. If you've got folks that really should be on call and you're trying to deliver, you know, highly reliable systems.
1: Now it's easier with Greenfield, right? You can set up your alerting and your notification with the best practice right there. But let's talk about those monolithic apps. What do you do? How do you go back and retool those alerts?
2: Yeah. Good question. And I am going to just continues to be on my soapbox here and to say, like, I don't actually care what the application is. I don't care how it's architected. I don't care if it's monolithic, if it's microservices, if it's, you know, a web app or something else. What I really care about is who is the service owner, right? Who's ultimately accountable for reliability of that system? Who's the one that receives the notifications when there's a problem? And what does user happiness mean in this context, right? Whatever the service is, there are users of it. Those users may be people. Uh, there may be other services in case of an API. Uh, we may be talking about a data processing pipeline, in which case you have inputs and outputs, and then you have you know data producers and data consumers. But in all of these cases, the things that we really need to understand is what is the actual service we're providing, and what metrics can we use to determine whether or not our service is doing the job that we built it to do? And so obviously everything I'm saying is like well-documented in the SRE books, and I'm really referring to service-level indicators, which are the things that tell us whether or not a service is doing the job that it's supposed to do, um, and then service-level objectives, which is what are the things that we measure our indicators against to determine whether or not you know things are well or there's a problem.
1: Yeah, and and tell us a little bit more about how you've used SLIs and SLOs to maximize the customer satisfaction at the end of the day.
2: Right, and so we use SLIs as a proxy for user happiness, right? For user-facing services, you know, the things that you're really going to care about are availability and performance, right? Availability is, like, can the user do the thing they're trying to do? And performance is how long does it take them to do the thing they're trying to do.
1: So when you set up your alerting, you're always keeping that in the back of your mind.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I would actually recommend that the only things we should get alerts on, and by alerts, I really mean things that we consider to require immediate human intervention, right? Those are the things that go to our pagers. Those are things that wake people up. Those are the things that then result in escalation if the initial page is not acknowledged right, whatever the case may be. If we have a good indicator in place that tells us that a service uh, is healthy or is not healthy, and then if we also have a good service level objective in place, which tells us, like, you know, based on the value of the indicator, what do we compare that against to determine whether we have a problem or not, then we can very confidently configure alerting in a way that says, okay, here's the the value of our indicator as compared to our objective, like we're either meeting our objective or we're not. It's also important to understand the concept of air budgets, which is essentially just sort of the inverse of our objectives, which is, you know, let's say that I talk about a service that has, you know, 99% availability over a rolling 30-day window. That means over the last 30 days, my ser- you know, 1% of the requests to that service can fail. And so I track that error budget. Obviously, if it, you know, if that's 1% over 30 days, my average error budget burn rate is going to be, what is it, 1 30th of a percent per day. Um, And then if, you know, I have a clever enough uh, monitoring and alerting system, I should actually be able to alert on things like error budget burn rate um, and to kind of know when the burn rate is looking like we're actually going to exceed our error budget at the end of the the period that we're comparing that against. And those are the things that should then be sent to people to, to take immediate human action. Anything else, you know, infrastructure issues, things that are actually not directly contributing into or impacting user happiness, you know, those should be created as tickets in our ticketing system, right? Those are the things that can take, uh, that can be responded to in a matter of hours or days. Right. They do not need to be responded to in a matter of minutes. And those, so those things should go into the queue. They should be addressed, yeah, sort of using, you know, good engineering practices. Uh, but there's certainly no need to, you know, wake someone, someone in the middle of the night because like one server crashed. Now, the question you asked, right, is, like, what do we do when we have a monolith, right? In the case of a monolith, a server crash may actually be enough to bring down our system, depending on which server it is, right? If we're talking about sort of the typical, you know, web, app, database, three-tier application, and, like, we just have one big database server, yeah, if that server crashes, like, that's that's bad. But our monitoring should let us know that the server has crashed because we're immediately going to see user requests start to fail, right? Yeah. Uh, the server being down obviously is important in that case. But if we have a cluster database, then like one of the database nodes note, going down is theoretically something that should be something that application is resilient to, and hopefully can, can you know, continue to work, and maybe someone can you know wake up in the morning, have their coffee, and then get to work, rather than be woken up in the middle of the night and sort of groggily trying to figure out you know what's going on.
1: Well, and, and you've brought this up, and we hear a lot about alert fatigue, which leads to burnout. Um, and making sure every alert that wakes a human up is human actionable sounds great, but isn't always easy. And it comes down to fine-tuning. Do you have recommendations?
2: So tell me why you think it's not always easy. I mean, you've obviously been working with customers a lot around alerting. Like, Why do you think it's not
1: easy? Well, I think when people aren't using alert grouping or smart features like that and they're doing it on their own, Mm -hmm. they still, well, I think that people want to see everything. They think that if there's not an alert, they don't know about something, that they're worried because they're not receiving that alert. And it's about trusting your system. Trusting your monitoring tools. What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, that's a great point, right? Is I think people often feel like if they don't have an alert for it, it's like not happening. Uh, you have to you know, invest in the monitoring enough to know that like, this information is still being captured, that it's being recorded, and then if you do need it for troubleshooting or debugging, like, the metrics are there. Uh, just because it's not subject to an alert doesn't mean it's not being captured. And so it's really important to have this like, good primary indicator of service health. And then everything else is essentially something that you only rely upon when you're doing troubleshooting or debugging, like really when there's either an incident in flight or like maybe your monitoring has uh, like is predicting that you will have you know an incident you're starting to see your air budget burn go up, you haven't yet consumed all of it, you're not yet in violation of your service level objective. But you can see that things are trending in a bad way. Okay, then it's like, all right, what what's going on? Where do I see corresponding trends in my system? But you don't even alert on all of that stuff because like again, yeah, like the only thing that you really need to take immediate action on is like increased air budget burn rate, you know SLO degradation or, or SLO violation.
1: Well, and the metrics are there. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have an alert to understand your metrics, but let's decrypt the metrics a little bit more. I'd love to go a little bit deeper for those who are not using SLIs and SLOs the way you are. And, and let's, let's, let's go deeper on how do we really dig deep into what the customer experience means when you're looking at service level indicators and objectives.
2: Yeah, great question. So I think customer experience is usually encapsulated in the, just a few sort of fairly straightforward things. Uh, if we're talking about sort of your typical, you know, web, uh, user facing service, right? The first thing you have to start it, with is like, what are the actual user journeys, right? What do people need to do in order for your service to deliver the value that it's supposed to deliver? So you have to have a good, a good understanding of like, what are people actually trying to do? and then some way of quantifying how do you measure the success of those things right and i mean there's some very easy examples right if we if we sell stuff online users have to be able to you know pull up the homepage do a search get results pick a product add it to the cart you know complete the purchase right You can split each one of those up. You can figure out how do you measure both the availability and performance on each of those um, steps, essentially. You know, what the page is that supports all of those actions. You know, how, like, actually deliver on the user experience that you're trying to deliver on. And then it's a matter of, okay, now that we know what are the things that we are trying to measure that represent user happiness, what are the metrics we can then use to actually quantify those? So if we start at the sort of the very first step, right, like loading the home page. A very straightforward way to measure that is going to be basically the availability or you know what percent of our requests do not result in an error, are delivered successfully, um, and then performance, like how long does that actually take. Uh, from there, it's a matter of figuring out what is the instrumentation method that I'm going to use to collect this information. Generally speaking, the closer that we are able to collect this information to the customer, the more accurate it is going to be. That's not always realistic, right? We're not always going to want to invest in like client side browser instrumentation, or that may not even necessarily be an option for us to like add telemetry to the user's JavaScript and then report back to our monitoring system. So perhaps the best we can do is look at like our load balancer logs that, you know, hopefully are logging every request, that are logging the response code, that are logging the latency on that request that's delivered back to the user. And then from there, we have like a pretty good representation of user experience for the page in question. You know, from there, we can create metrics from those logs, kind of extract those numeric payloads and uh, turn them into metrics. Uh, and then hopefully, we can convert them into service level objectives. So we can decide that, like, hey, our homepage needs to be, you know, whatever four nines available over a rolling 28 day window. And then there we go like we're basically done with that part of it we can create a sort of a corresponding thing for latency as well so we can say that like you know 99 the 99 percentile latency has to be under whatever 300 milliseconds yeah over a 20 day window or something like that
1: fantastic thank you for that let's let's talk a little bit about monitoring sure. and really how monitoring relates to your alerting I mean let's let's talk about the technical debt that monitoring can really have. You want to talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, that is a good question. I think technical debt is often expressed in this area as essentially almost a gap in knowledge, often as a result of the accumulation of time. it's like we started build, you know, we started building this thing three years ago. It's sort of like morphed, morphed and evolved since then, and our understanding of it, which in my opinion is incredibly important to good monitoring to really have a very clear understanding of like how your system works and what it does and how the components interact with each other Um, has just not kept up with the system as it's evolved. And so you end up in these situations where people essentially have to treat their system as a black box. Um, And so you'll hear the term black box monitoring used very often because they don't actually know how it works. So all they know is Hey, like, user requests go in, user responses come back out. There's some, like, database queries happen on the other end of it. But what happens in the middle is, like, really hard to understand. And I think that's, like, one way in which technical debt can really manifest itself in in monitoring is it's basically, it just, like, limits your ability to really understand what's happening within the system beyond what are the inputs and what are the outputs.
1: Okay. So, I mean, when it comes down to it, it's about... Having the alerting set up correct so that it's tying to your SLIs and your SLOs, understanding how your monitoring system is setting off those alerts, and at the end of the day, not sending everything (laughs) to the spam file in your email.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, on the one hand, I completely understand how it's sort of very easy for me to sit here. Like, hey, I work at Google. You work at PagerDuty. Like, our companies literally write the books on this stuff. And so it's easy for us to say, to sit here and say, hey, like everyone should have good SLOs and SLIs and like computer only alert on these things. But like the reality is that when we talk to our customers, part of the problem, honestly, is that there's like real organizational inertia around how this stuff is done. And I think it falls to us to help our customers understand that even in a situation where you do not have the freedom to like really have true service ownership. You're not empowered to have like air budgets that are meaningful in that you use them to actually enforce behavior and not just alert on that. There's still really, really good value in understanding what is the service that you're supporting supposed to do? How do each of the components of the service work? And what are the things that you should be alerting on? because they require immediate human intervention rather than just something that can go into a ticket queue and be dealt with tomorrow.
1: And, you know, I want to follow up on something. I've written a couple of articles on full-service ownership. You've mentioned service ownership and the empowerment that it has to engineers. I'd love to hear what your definition of service ownership is.
2: Yeah, and to be honest, I don't know that I have a great definition of service ownership. I think of it more in terms of engineer empowerment, which is if... I am part of the team that owns reliability for a particular service. I have to be able to control the things that actually have an effect on that reliability, right? Like if I if I have the accountability, I got to have the power. And that means I have to have the power to stop changes from happening to the service mm. when reliability is compromised. And this is where like error budgets are the the way that we recommend folks actually implement this, right? You measure your error budget, you measure your error budget burn and if the burn is exceeding what you are comfortable with, you do things like you freeze changes, you freeze feature releases and you really work on reliability until your service is restored and you're like regaining error budget rather than burning it. And that's what I'm talking about when I say that like folks aren't really empowered to do that, right? Like if you're not running like an SRE team, uh, a site reliability engineering team, You may very well be in a situation where, like, development and ops are still siloed. They're not, like, they're not really friends. They're not talking to each other. They're working across purposes because those incentives aren't aligned, right? They're talking about developers being incentivized by velocity and speed of delivering features, and operations is largely incentivized by stability, and which happens as a result of resisting to change often. Those, like, both totally understandable how then that drives human behavior and how developers want to push code and Ops wants to like do nothing because things are working.
1: So what's your advice for those teams, though, that are still in that space?
2: Try to make friends with folks on the other side. Combine, like, join forces and uh, see that it's actually better to be working together. I think one of the biggest things that I think I've realized fairly recently is, um, and we, we talk about this pretty publicly, is that shared air budgets are actually a way to drive velocity rather than impede it. I think folks are often sort of resistant to this idea of having error budget because they think it'll prevent them from doing stuff. But what we've actually seen is when error budgets are implemented properly and people actually use the error budget, it gives them more leeway to do stuff. It gives them more leeway to push features faster, to experiment even, to do things like chaos engineering, for example. Because they know that, hey, we actually have this error budget available. Like, let's use it to, like, drive change in the system. Let's use it to make our system more reliable. Let's use it to test how reliable our system is. Let's use it to do things like test whether our backups are working, whether our failover is working, whether our replication is working. And that's the kind of stuff that, over time, makes your system more reliable, which will then, again, free you, free more error budget up for you to do further experiments and increase velocity. I think if we think about how folks are operating when they don't have a good air budget is you just sort of have this like constant state of tension versus pushing, like, do we push something or do we not push something? Because we actually don't know whether, like, we should take a risk right now. And having a good air budget in place, you can, like, look at it at any point and say, yes, we have air budget, let's, like, do the thing, or no, we don't, let's wait until, until things are in a better place. And so air budgets very much drive innovation and velocity, and I think I would take that message to the folks that are sort of having a kind of conflict over this and tell them to actually join forces, come together, agree on an air budget. That'll that'll really help both sides.
1: That's great advice, Yuri. And it looks like it is about time for us to get back to PagerDuty Summit. So uh, any parting words for our listeners today?
2: Well, first, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's a, it's a real honor to be here. Uh, but also, yeah, think about, you know, what is your service doing? How can you tell if your users are happy? Start with that and then everything else will follow.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you, and thank you for being here. And uh, this is Julie Gunderson from the PagerDuty studio, wishing you an uneventful day.
0: That does it for another installment of Page it to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. That's at limit. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.